Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast. This week it's going to be all about a scandal which causes emotions to run wild, even today. We dig into an incident involving Australians based in Pretoria who committed war crimes and were executed. But what really happened? I'm going to try and detach the myth from the reality about Breaker Morant, Bulala Taylor and the first ever British military war crimes court case. It must not be forgotten that the Boer War was Australia's first experience of a sustained imperial war fought beyond its shores. Just exactly what they did is still debated. I've researched terrible incidents described by a doctor living in Pretoria. He was Dr. Alexander Kay. We've already heard from him. Remember, he was besieged in Ladysmith at the start of the war. Much of what he wrote about in his diary was corroborated by independent witnesses and court documents later. Still, this remains an emotional tale, so I'm going to have to tread very softly indeed. The trouble began at the end of March 1901, when a corps of volunteers was raised by the British in Pretoria under the name of the Bushveld Carboneers. In modern terms, they'd be somewhat like a band of mercenaries mixed with imperialists, a sprinkling of criminals, some imbued with the character of vigilantes. Most, unfortunately, were after treasure. Throw in greed, alcohol, and a seriously warped sense of ethics, and that could describe the Bushveld Carboneers. At least, that's what the facts say, so please don't get angry if your ancestors fought in this unit. They were courageous, they were in a war, they were far away from home. The man who came up with the original idea of starting the Bushveld Carboneers was a barman, who said he'd build a new unit for the British, but needed £500 to purchase equipment. Substantial sum in 1901. As Dr. K writes, As a reward, he was transformed from a bartender to a captain and paymaster. Furthermore, this publican understood that if he played his cards right, great profits could be made. He could be granted land too, the most profitable of things, along with other capital goods like cattle. His motivation to build a unit for the British Empire was immediately questioned. Within a week of donning his bright, shiny new uniform, he applied for liquor licenses at all ten stations on the Pretoria to Petersburg railway line. But the British were wary of such a request. The answer was no. He was apparently indignant when informed of the decision and plotted to make a profit come what may. Shortly thereafter, the command of his new corps was given to what Dr. K calls a major who had been dismissed from the Australian contingent for his actions so far in South Africa, which appeared to rest on grand theft, looting, rape and murder. At least, that was Dr. K's assertion in 1901. The officer commanding was Harry Breaker Harbord Morant, a drover, horseman, bush poet, military officer and eventually convicted war criminal. He was born in 1864 in Somerset, England, but spent most of his life in Australia before the Boer War. So Harry Breaker Morant invited a few other Australian officers to join this new military unit called the Bushveld Carboneers. In the words of Dr. K, they were quite unfit to hold commissions, and at the time of their appointments, very unpleasant remarks were made on the subject, and unfortunately, the justice of these remarks is now apparent. Bear with me as I explain. 
Remember, it's the time of farm burnings where Lords Roberts and Kitchener have begun to enforce the ransacking and gutting of Boer farms in order supposedly to force the commandos off the Felton into surrender. As we've discussed, this merely embittered the Boers further and extended the war. It also led to the creation of the Bushveld Carboneers and its members sensing a good way to make some treasure for themselves. Lord Kitchener said, gloves off, ransacking must commence, and so all good colonials took up the cudgels. The corps was raised for the express purpose of scouting and raiding cattle of the Boer commandos in the Bushveld north and northeast of Pretoria, much of it in hilly and mountainous terrain, and most favourable territory for guerrilla warfare. Think of it a bit like Sir Francis Drake ransacking the Spanish Armada, except in Africa and on land. As soon as the corps was raised, they moved north to Pinar's River, about 65 kilometers north of Pretoria, and close to where our Boer narrator Denise Reitz has been watching the British move for about a month, chomping at the bit to attack the English. You must now place yourselves in both the shoes of the Australians and the Boers, if that is possible. The reason why I say this is what happened next continues to be debated by both, as if it were yesterday. Let's start with the facts, and then ascribe blame where we can. I let Dr. K, the British doctor in Pretoria, explain what he believed took place. Remember, he was fighting on the same side as the Australians. At present, it is possible to ascertain all details as the authorities are most anxious that nothing should leak out. But from various sources, it is beyond doubt that 23 surrendered Boer prisoners were most brutally and treacherously murdered, including an old man very ill with fever. Dr. K could have been exaggerating. To this day, we're not entirely sure of how many Boers were killed in this wave of horror and violence. You see, the Bushville Carboneers were patrolling far to the north of the capital and stopped at each Boer farmhouse searching for men who were still fighting. They also used these stops as opportunities to loot. The British reporter at the end of the war said that a Boer by the name of Van Buren, who witnessed the first murders, stepped forward and remonstrated with Breaker Morant after he'd shot a group of Boers who were being treated in a hospital in the town of Louis Trichard. At that point, Lieutenant Hancock, one of Breaker Morant's officers, fired three shots at Van Buren with his revolver. The Boer fell to the ground, mortally wounded. Just to finish him off, Hancock then broke Van Buren's skull with the butt of his rifle. The very same Hancock apparently committed an equally egregious act of shooting other prisoners in cold blood. A German missionary called Reverend Karl August Daniel Hees witnessed the bodies of some of the murdered men and is one of the reasons why the Breco Morant saga was ever brought to light. Reverend Hees had spiritually counseled the Dutch and Afrikaner victims at Elm Hospital in Louis Trichard. He was indignant and vowed to inform Morant's commanding officer, riding off to Pretoria immediately along with his black assistant. However, the man of the cloth was tracked by members of the Carboneers who shot both men dead on the road in an isolated spot. It was a big mistake. That incident couldn't go unnoticed. Some say it was Hancock once again who pulled the trigger. Australians today blame an Irishman, who I'll talk about in a minute. Then, another Boer called Smith who had surrendered was summarily executed by the Australians, apparently because he had a valuable farm in the area, and one of the Carboneers' officers had openly stated that when the war was over, he was going to apply for Smith's farm. That's what Dr. K reported. British Army reports later indicated this was true. 
Whatever the total number of Boer prisoners shot out of hand by the Bushveld Carboneers, there was no doubt that the Carboneers were committing war crimes under the guise of the clearing of Boer farms as ordered by Lord Kitchener. Their depravity worsened, if that's possible, because they targeted their own men. The day after Farmer Smith was gunned down, another Australian called Sergeant Rogers balked after being told to shoot more prisoners taken during a looting expedition just to shut them up. He flatly refused. The result is his own officers conspired to kill him too. On about the 14th of November, he was ordered to head off on the left flank of the Carboneers to scout, which meant he was riding point by himself. That, as all military commanders know, is highly irregular, even in 1901, and Sergeant Rogers, being experienced, knew immediately that something was amiss. And so it was. A sniper from his own unit was sent to hide in the bush, but Sergeant Rogers saw him. The sniper fired and missed, then escaped. The Carboneers' reign of terror continued. Sergeant Rogers could not prove the sniper was from his own unit and continued to watch his back. Dr. K writes, It was understood that if a man was ordered to the left flank, his doom was sealed. This was so well known that the men refused to leave camp alone and invariably kept their rifles handy and loaded. At this point, the Carboneers had descended into what author William Golding describes in his great book, Lord of the Flies, where leadership at a time of extreme violence breaks down, the dark side of men and women take hold, and from then on, brutality knows no bounds. And that's what happened in 1901, north of Pretoria, as the Bushveld Carboneers pillaged. Furthermore, it appears a flourishing black market had taken root which the Carboneers exploited, a kind of organized criminal network which we've seen take place when a foreign army enters a territory with a big budget. Think of other instances where this has taken place, World War II, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq. During the Boer War, it worked like this. When Boers surrendered their farms, the British had allowed them to keep their cattle, which were and remain a hugely valuable commodity in Africa. Lord Roberts and then Lord Kitchener's proclamations had made this clear. If you surrender, you keep your property. If you fight or commit acts of guerrilla war, then everything is either looted or destroyed. But the Carboneers were growing frustrated. Farm after farm saw Boers surrendering, and all they had for their trouble was a few shillings a month. And they knew that many Boers were only pretending to surrender. They became more frustrated by the week. The big money was in the cattle, and the Carboneers wanted the big money. However, if the Boer owners were shot, well, that was an entirely different picture. Dead men tell no tales. Shot while trying to escape. Shot in a short skirmish, read the reports. These officers had decided that if the owners suffered a mishap, their cattle could be sent north to the then Rhodesia, no questions asked. It was said, reports Dr. K, that thousands of cattle were sent there, the greater part stolen from the government. He hastens to add that none of the officers in this unit were what he calls imperial men. In other words, English. They were colonials. They were acting like hillbillies. Colonials lived in the country with the Boers, and the hatred between the two was evident. It is lamentable, continued the good doctor, that commission should be given to men whose antecedents are not inquired into, and that we should have included in the corps a number of Boers to fight against their own people, which is wrong both morally and politically. Dr. K was incensed by the reports and the fact that despite proof of these killings and looting, they were proving hearts and minds nightmare for him and the other British. 
the local English did nothing. Throughout this war, the Portuguese on the eastern seaboard of Africa and Portuguese East Africa were neutral, but they often sympathized with the Boers. So Dr. K got wind of the details of the crimes from the Portuguese and wrote to Joseph Chamberlain, the British politician. The result was, eventually, Chamberlain ordered an inquiry, which was followed by a court-martial, and the result is Hancock and Morant were found guilty and executed by a firing squad selected from the Scots unit, the Cameron Highlanders, at the end of the war in February 1902. But they were not involved in all of the killings, and they appear to have been made scapegoats in order to obscure the fact that there was a general looting, raping and murderous rampage going on in 1901. The formal charge read that Harry Breaker Morant was accused of the summary execution of Flores Fisser, a wounded prisoner of war, as well as the murder of Boers and four Dutch schoolteachers who had been taken prisoner at the Elm Hospital. The priest's murder was unresolved, but was what really caused the door to open on this miserable series of events. What is also really interesting is the Breaker Morant story has caused an outpouring of nationalism back home in Australia. That outpouring took half a century to gather pace, bizarrely. The English had killed a man of the Australian soil, and his story is still remembered as a hero of the struggle against the monarchy, a courageous Republican killed by the unscrupulous empire. The narrative is tied to the idea that working-class Australian men of honour were wrongly accused by the wicked English class system and were made scapegoats in a war far away. There's actually a movement to have Hancock and Morant pardoned posthumously, and there's also much public support for such a move, which only emerged in the early 2000s, a century later. Their court-martial has been captured in one of Australia's best movies called Breaker Morant. Hopefully Netflix gets a copy. But the plot thickens. You see, in the northern Transvaal region of South Africa, what is now called Limpopo province, descendants of the Boers murdered by the Carboneers say the real culprit was actually the Irishman officer called Captain Alfred Bulala Taylor. He is hated even now for escaping justice. But who was Captain Taylor? He symbolizes the period in many ways, as have our other adventurers. But Captain Taylor was nothing like the American Major Frederick Russell Burnham, who was regarded as an honorable man. Burnham was eventually crowned the King of the Scouts, and his heroics and adventures personally earned him great respect amongst the British and Boers throughout his time in South Africa. Captain Alfred James Bulala Taylor, who was born in Dublin of a middle-class family, was an entirely different kettle of fish. Bulala, by the way, means kill in Isizulu and Isindebele. Bulala Taylor first plied his trade as a mercenary for the British South African Company set up by Cecil John Rhodes, which invaded and conquered Rhodesia by the late 1890s. Taylor then became notorious for atrocities he committed against the Ndebele and cattle raiding conducted against black clans in the area during two uprisings. He appeared to take personal delight in the suffering of humans and even tortured his victims at times. There's much propaganda on both sides in this Rhodesian saga, black and white, but the facts are pretty much proven about Bulala Taylor's propensity to commit random acts of violence purely for pleasure. After all, you don't get called Bulala because you're a ballerina. You see, Taylor was selected by Lord Kitchener as liaison officer for the Bushveld Carboneers when they set up camp at Fort Edward in the northern Transvaal near the Pinar River. 
South African historian Dr. C.A.R. Schulenberg has described Taylor as a notorious sadist who was ruthless towards black and white South Africans alike. Captain Bulala Taylor joined Morant and Hancock in the dock after the war. Facing them were 15 enlisted men of the Bushville Carboneers who gave evidence against their former officers about what they'd done. Both Irishman Taylor and the Australians Morant and Hancock. It's one of the first war crimes prosecutions in British military history. Taylor stood accused of ordering the massacre of six unarmed Boer men and boys at Valdesia on the 2nd of July 1901 and the theft of all their money and livestock. He was also charged with the murder of an unarmed black civilian. Taylor's defence attorney, Australian Army Major J.F. Thomas, managed to secure an acquittal on all charges. He was an Irish monarchist after all. But Morant and Hancock were not so lucky, and this is the crux of the campaign to resurrect their names in Australia. Taylor eventually left the British Armed Forces and returned to Rhodesia, where he died in Bulawayo, 1941, glorified by hardliners living there. He was deified by whites of that country as a man who brought civilization to darkest Africa through his daring do and dint of courage, knowing how to keep blacks in their place in a manner of speaking. The irony is, he was hated by South African whites too, the Boers. For black Africans and the Boers, he was the epitome of evil, preying on the people of the felt and prone to summary executions and violence. In Australia, Republicans and Nationalists regard Morant and Hancock as heroes, while in the South African towns of Louis Trichard or Mercado, as it's now known, descendants of the Boers tell tales of Taylor's brutal killing of young Afrikaner boys. White Rhodesians call him a hero, white South Africans call him a murderer. So you can see the Breaker Morant saga is fresh in the mind's eye of Africa's diverse peoples, as it is amongst Republican-minded Australians. You can take sides, you can argue about the motivation, but you cannot escape the facts. Taylor, Morant, Hancock were indulging the murder of black and white civilians in order to loot and sell the stolen cattle through their black market network. They were also taking out their frustrations on the Boers, who appeared to surrender only to break their word as soon as the British backs were turned. Well, with that, I have to stop. Next week, we cover the death of Crazy Horse Malpert, which left Denise Raitz bereft, as well as an event that became known as the Great Devate Hunt. The Mercurial General tried to invade the Cape Colony, pursued by thousands of British troops. Please remember to rate the podcast, and you can send me messages through our website, abwarpodcast.com. So until next week, goodbye. Sonnergedal langs die moer, die se wal, het sê broerlogsdag geblei.